We'll read God's word together. We are in Zechariah chapter 4 today. And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, like a man who was awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? I said, I see and behold a lampstand of all gold with a bowl on top of it and seven lamps on it with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other is on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right and on the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, what are these two branches of the olive trees, which are beside the two golden pipes from which the golden oil is poured out? He said to me, do you not know what these are? I said, no, my Lord. Then he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Thanks, Megan. Uh, if you all want to be seated, this is the word of the Lord. Zechariah 4, which is paired with Zechariah 3 from last week, as we've looked at before in the chiasm, uh, and we will get started discussing that. God, thank you for scripture that you've given us. Thank you for your leading by your spirit. We pray that now as I speak, you would be speaking. Um, that you would use the words of Scripture that are here, that you would use words that I say, that you would use the circumstances we've been in, that you would speak to our hearts and change us. That we would be more like you, that we would know what it means to be part of your family even more than we did before we came. That you would empower us and embolden us for the works you have for us today and this week and on into the future. Help us to see clearly what can sometimes be confusing, not because we are so wise, but because you are enlightening the eyes of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2003, in the fall, it was getting close to basketball season, and those who grew up in Michigan, like me, which is, I think, none of the rest of you, but that's okay, thought the Detroit Pistons were pretty cool. And the interesting thing about the Detroit Pistons is not only that they won that year, but how they did it. Because it's been pointed out that if you look at that picture right there on the screen, which has, I think, all the members of the team, it certainly has their top people all shown there, none of them are in considerations of like the top 75 or top 100 or whatever players in NBA history, which is very unique amongst all the championship teams that have ever 
won a championship in the NBA. They can arguably be called the only team that has ever won with such poor overall talent. This was a day of small things, so to speak, when the fall of 2003 started. A small team. Number three, Ben Wallace was undrafted out of college. No one considered him worthy of being pulled onto their team, and he worked hard and made it onto a team. Multiple other people on the team had kicked around from team to team and not found a proper landing spot. This was not a superstar team that was supposed to win. This was not something that the world would look at and say, they're going to be amazing. Go do amazing things. Really, this was a team that could be very satisfied with the accomplishments of the past and go home happy because they didn't deserve to win anything by all rights. There were so many other teams with better players, better scenarios. And yet they found themselves at the end of the season all standing around cheering with a trophy and excited because they had won the entire thing. And to do so, they had actually beaten a Los Angeles Lakers team that had four Hall of Famers on it. Well, they weren't yet Hall of Famers, but they would be. Superstar players who had had lengthy careers, who everyone considered to be amazing. The Lakers were the super team of the year that was pretty much guaranteed to win, and instead was upended by a bunch of little upstarts, some of whom went undrafted out of college, none of whom were considered incredible players. Arguably the best player on the team, Ben Wallace, was very, very good at defense and couldn't shoot worth anything. And if you know the game of basketball, you're supposed to throw the basketball into the hoop, so shooting kind of matters. But he couldn't, and they came together as a team, and they won anyway. So why does this matter? This matters because this text in Zechariah is calling us to look at the days of small things and stop despising them and stop just seeing small things. It's calling us to see the hope of what can be done when God is at work. It's calling us to see, in short, the first point I have on the slides, the summary, God empowers his people to do his work by dependent faith. God empowers his people to do his work by dependent faith. It's not that God's people are superstars in their own right. It's not that God's people are guaranteed to be the trophies of righteousness. It's that God is at work in his people. So what are we looking at when we look at the context of Zechariah as a whole? We've talked about some of these things in the past, but brief reminder, the people had come back from exile, not all of them, but many of them, all the ones who were there certainly had come back from exile. There were others still in Babylon, comfortable in Babylon, uncomfortable in Babylon, whatever. They hadn't felt willingness to leave when the opportunity to leave had come so far. So these people had come back. They had started working on the temple. They had started working on other things, but they had become discouraged. They had had enemies around them saying, don't do this, you're dumb, we don't like you. They had had other people saying, you can't do it. Other people saying, it's not worth it. They had been seeing their own meager efforts and some of them remembering, some of the oldest of them remembering the former grandeur of the far greater temple and feeling like this was pointless, we're never going to pull this off. They had been beat down and discouraged and they had stopped building it. They had laid the foundation of the temple and they had turned away. The economy was bad. The enemies were mean. They were discouraged. They turned back to their houses and their comfort and sat around and lived. It was a day of small things. It was a day when looking around, nobody felt like a superstar. Nobody felt like they were just going to handle this and the temple would be amazing. There was, in many ways, no hope for them 
in themselves. And then you look to their leaders. So Joshua, who we talked about last week, as Justin was preaching through chapter 3, he was the 24th high priest in line from Aaron. 24th. And as the text last week showed, and as Justin pointed out, Joshua had his poop suit on. He had unrighteousness. He had filthy rags. He had nothing. When you look at Joshua the priest, you don't look at him and go, that's a great leader. You go, he screwed up like the rest of us. So you're following Joshua the high priest who doesn't have much to commend him. And Zerubbabel, well, his name literally means seed of Babylon. So you're following a dirty high priest in the seed of Babylon. And that's supposed to be the way you're going to follow God. Zerubbabel, technically, if he were actually the king, would have been the 16th king in the dynasty of the Davidic kingdom. He was part of the line of David. And he had been appointed by a Persian ruler as the governor of the Jewish area. So he was officially in rule, but he was not actually king. It was this Persian guy who had appointed him. It was, you know, didn't feel right the seed of Babylon in rule, but not as king, and following in Davidic dynasty, but not quite anointed as king in the same way. And what are we really doing here? A dirty high priest, a sort of qualified leader, what is this? In chapter 3, God says, no, no, I've taken this priest and I'm cleaning him up, and he can lead you. Not because he's so great, but because I am. And in chapter 4, God turns his focus to Zerubbabel, so first we have this vision in the first five verses, and it's, it's quite an interesting vision, and if you guys can throw that picture up there, it looks something like this, perhaps. There's a whole lot of different people have done drawings of this, trying to sort out some of the details. Um, but you've got a lampstand, you have a bowl on top of the lampstand, and then you have seven different candles or oil lamps coming up? Like, did it actually look like the classic menorah? Did it look something like this image here? The difficulty is the bowl part, which is why this person drew it this way. And then you have this description that each of the, the lips of the lampstand had its own spouts or lips on it, which this drawing doesn't reflect. And sometimes, depending on pe- how people translate it, they understand it as seven different spouts coming from the tree to the lamps. So whether you have the different spouts to the lamps or whether each lamp has seven more lamps and so there's effectively 49 lamps is somewhat immaterial. The point is you have a lampstand with kind of an attachment to these two olive trees. It's being fueled from the olive oil from these olive trees and the lampstand is still there. That's essentially the first five verses. Is that this image shows up and then Zechariah is like, what are these? The angel's like, don't you know? It's like, no, I don't. Like, I, <laughs> that's why I asked, is because I don't know. Right? And so we would expect an answer to, okay, here's what these are, just as we've had in these previous visions. You look at it, and, and you know, he's like, what's this thing? And the angel says, it's that. And what's this thing? And the angel says, it's this. And the angel sometimes says, hey, do you know what this is? He says, nope. And he says, it's this. It's the interpreting angel who's there with him, leading him through these visions as he goes through this very interesting night of eight visions. But instead, in this case, the angel does not provide an immediate answer. What the angel does instead is turns to the message of this vision, like the point of why it's there, and to present that. Now, before we go into that, I want to remind you, and it's on the note sheets if you have it. If you don't, I can just describe it. But the the chiasm that we've been talking about, about these visions. 
So visions one and eight were the ones that dealt with horses and were talking about peace, both a false peace of God's people, uh, sorry, of God's enemies, and then a true peace that God was going to establish. Visions two and seven, as we move in toward the center, visions two and seven were talking about dealing with sin. So you have the, the vision of, um, uh, of the craftsman with the horns in vision two. And then you have the vision of sin being taken away. Visions three and six are dealing with the city and God's presence there and the impact that God's presence make. So again, if you remember in chiastic thought and the way that that works functionally, rather than in the United States, we go point one, point two, point three, therefore conclusion. Or maybe we go conclusion, as you can see from point one and point two and point three. Right? Those are the kind of common ways that we think through things. In Hebrew thought, very often, this is a round-trip thinking. So we go one that matches with final and two that matches with second to final. And then when you get to the center, that's the key point from which we're then coming back. So we travel through these points to the main point and then we travel back from the main point through those points again. So we're sitting in the main point last week and this week in visions four and five where God is establishing his leaders and giving his strength to them. So as we looked last week where God's saying, my righteousness as well as sustain you, not your own. Now we're looking this week and we see this message starting in verse six. He said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. This is the message that he's given before the interpretation, in this case, of the vision. And the first summary point here of that message is depend in faith on God's spirit not your strength or possibilities. Or to put it in God's terms, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God's calling us not to think of the meager efforts we've made so far. Not to think of how strong our biceps are to lift the stones into place. Not to think of how strong our brains are to sort out the problems. Not to think of how strong our community is to manage what's going on, not to think of how right we might be or might not be to have the correct insight. None of that, not by might, not by power, not by your strength, not by your ideals, but by my spirit, says the Lord. As we are seeking to be faithful, it's vital to depend on God's work in us, on God's work through us. You can't prove anything, and you don't have to. <laughs> and apart from God's work by his spirit, you will not be accomplishing his work faithfully. You'll be accomplishing things. And maybe God will see fit to use them, but it won't be because you are being steadfastly committed to what he's doing in you. It'll be because he's being willing to work in the midst of what you're doing despite your self-dependent faithlessness. The thing is, it's, it's difficult because oftentimes in the midst of our trials or in the midst of life, what we're really asking God to do, and we're not using these words, 
What we're really asking is that God would make us independently faithless. We're not saying I want to have no faith, but we're asking for God to make us so strong and so autonomous that we can do it without him. Whether that's by having the right amount of money or the right amount of resources, the right amount of physical strength, mental strength, wisdom, insurance, et cetera, et cetera. As long as God, if you give me enough buffer, I can manage this life without you. I'll be cool, thanks. So if you can just do that for me, God, the right house, the right cars, the right economy, the right job, the right girlfriend, the right boyfriend, the right spouse, the right kids. Just God, provide me all those things and then I'll be fine because then I'll be able to do it without you. And again, we rarely say that last part. We don't even think it necessarily. (laughs) But if we look carefully at our hearts, why are we begging for so many things? So often, look at my own heart, look at your own heart. Why am I really asking for this? Why am I really dissatisfied until I have it? Why do I feel more comfortable when I can do it myself? I find myself independently faithless. And the reason that I'm crying out is not because I believe God can do it through me. It's not because I believe, like Paul said in 2 Corinthians, that in my weakness, he is strong. It's that I just want God to make me strong so I can be self-reliant again. And thank God he isn't really interested in that. (laughs) God wants what's best for us. He wants us to be able to see him. He wants us to be able to rely on him. And so he, sometimes it feels rather ruthlessly, cuts the bonds that would otherwise hold us tight to the things of this world and cuts away things that would make us depend on ourselves. Not by might, not by power. You see, the people might have been looking at Zerubbabel and saying, well, yeah, once, once we're ready or once we're strong enough or once he shows he can lead well enough, once we're done building these other houses or once we do this or that other thing, and we can see that we're ready to proceed, once we have a big enough army built up that we can defend ourselves against the enemies around us after we build the temple and they are mad, any number of possible conditions they might have put on this. Just like we put possible conditions on on when we're ready to serve. Once I feel a certain way or feel free enough of this or that thing or once I feel strong enough in this or that way or once I know enough or once... Once I have enough, once I have enough money or health or whatever it might be. And God's saying, stop looking at yourself. Stop looking at your own circumstances. Stop looking at your own strength because not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. He wants to make us, instead of independently faithless, he wants us to make, wants to make us dependently faithful. That we would not try to to shirk the dependence that we have on him, that we would actually take glory in it, that we recognize we are not capable of all things, and he is. And that we were never meant to do this on our own. We were meant to do it by him, by the power of God, that he is the one who empowers his people to do his work by dependent faith, by his spirit at work in us specifically. So then we have this point that he goes on to make in this in verse 10, that we need to depend in faith on God's work, not your first impressions. So often we talk about first impressions. Make a good first impression. When you go to the interview, make a good first impression. Dress up in some way that you think that they're going to like or say the right things or whatever. When you're going on a date, make good first impressions. Make sure not to slurp the spaghetti. Don't even order spaghetti because it might land on your shirt. And then everyone will know that you're a total slob and not worthy of ever hanging out with. 
make good first impressions. Whatever you do, business life, life in general, first impressions are so much. And the weird thing is, by doing that, we reinforce this lie that the first impression is everything. And so culturally, we have a very strong belief. First impression dictates all. <laughs> by the first impression that I get, I shall know what you are, whether you are a slob or a knight in shining armor. And we have this thing that we call love at first sight that we declare in the movies and all of this, which is just total hogwash. Um, but we do it, and we reinforce it, and we love it, and we talk about it so much, and we tell each other, again, to reinforce this same system. And God says in verse 10, whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice. This is after they're seeing the work that is going to be done through Zerubbabel, that the temple will be rebuilt. But he's acknowledging there are those even then who are despising the current day of small things, who are looking down on it who were seeing their first impressions of this pitiful temple effort where the foundation started to be built and people couldn't even hold out past some initial criticism. People couldn't even hold out past some initial economic difficulty. Couldn't hold out past some initial strife within amongst each other. Maybe they were arguing over where the door should go or who knows the different impacts that were going on. But they set aside this project and certainly there are many going, yeah, <laughs> knew we couldn't do it anyway. Look at this pathetic attempt trying to rebuild the temple. Who do we think we are? We have a struggle because our first impressions and when we compare the small things to all the huge things that go around us, or supposedly huge things, when we look at the miracles in the Bible, which, by the way, were actually scattered circumstances, you know, we read, the, we read of them in the Bible and I feel like so often we're like, this was happening every single day. Like, well, no, there's a lot recorded here, but it doesn't say every single day there was a miracle happening throughout the Bible. There's a lot of ordinary life that happens. There's a lot of small things that happen all throughout Scripture, small things of faithfulness, small things of daily efforts. But we live in a culture where small things are derided, mocked, hated. We, we glory in power. We glory in strength. We glory in those who have no flaws, we glory in those who are guaranteed to lead the team to victory. Those who have ruthlessly cut down all others as they make their way up to the top of the corporate ladder. We glory in those who have the most money, have the most things, strength, power, amazement. The ones who look shockingly good in whatever dress it is or whatever suit they're wearing. Those who are just totally smooth and put together and their hair is not even out of place as they're fighting off the bad guys. We glory in a lot of power, a lot of big things. We look at stories in newspapers and magazines of the big people doing the big things, and we wonder, when's my shot? When's my 15 minutes of fame? To use a phrase that we so often throw out there. We show up on a random news story being interviewed because we happened to be standing by while the building burned down, and all of our friends and family are watching us. We're like, look, I was on the news! Or we give the valedictorian speech and suddenly that's the, that's the shining moment. But all of those things are, when those are the only things we think matter, we're despising the small things. And when we're willing to judge God's work by the way he begins, we're very ignorant of God's, the breadth of what he can do and the patience with which he does it at times. We might look around even now and be like those, that Second Peter references who said, when's God coming? Ever since we've seen, it's just the same as it always has been. 
And Peter says, you don't know what you're talking about. God's being patient that more would be saved before he remakes the whole entire earth. We see in the scripture God's patience in the big picture, in lengthy time frames. We see God's work over years and centuries. But we get ourselves stuck at times in the day-to-day What's really happening here anyway? And whether that's an at-home mother who feels like all of her contributions to society are nothing other than cleaning up stinky diapers, or a worker who's at the end of a line of an assembly line who just hates their job because all they do is shove a screw in place every day, or someone else who does far more than that and feels underappreciated at work, or you name it. We've got various circumstances. We so often feel the pain of small things and therefore despise it. But God's calling us to depend in faith on his work, not our first impressions. So this message is given to depend on his spirit and depend on his work and what he is doing. And then the interpretation of the vision is given. In verse 10, the second half of it, through the end of the chapter, these seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. And then Zechariah asks twice, slightly modified question, what are the two olive trees? What are the branches from the olive trees that are touching these pipes that the golden oil has poured out? And the angel says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So we're called now at the conclusion of this vision to depend in faith on God's work, not, or sorry, God's anointed, not the world's powerful. These are the two anointed that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. What two? It seems relatively clear from the progress of this vision and especially the coupling with the previous one in chapter 3 that these two are Joshua and Zerubbabel in the immediate context. The appointed leaders God has given, the priest, the, the ruler who would be king. These two leaders, religious and political, you know, holy life and civic life, however you want define those two things. But these are the two God's given who are anointed by God, spiritually speaking, to rule in these positions. They're standing by the Lord of the whole earth, is what he says. He doesn't say, you know, this is the proof that you're going to have someone someone new come in who's actually better or that sort of thing. He's saying they're here. They're attached to this olive tree. They're fueling the lamp. So what's happening in the rest of the vision then? Can you throw that slide up again, Brett, the vision slide? Sorry, I know it's not in order. There you go. Cool. Thanks. Right, so we've got kind of unaccounted for here because the only thing Zechariah actually asks about is, well, what's, what's the deal with the connection to the trees? God says, these are the Lord's anointed, stand by the Lord of the whole earth. And I believe based on that fact, if he's interpreting the trees as those who stand by God and the trees are kind of fueling the lamp, we know that God's anointed workers don't fuel God. It's the other way around. God fuels his anointed workers, right? So, so therefore, I believe the lamp in the center is intended to indicate God's people as a whole who are being fueled by God through his anointed leaders to shine for him. There's, there's others who have interpreted it differently who have seen the, the olive trees as being like Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets who were preaching to God's people at the time. Similar point, God's two anointed prophets fueling his people's work. So there's other ways we could try to see it, but especially given the way that God interprets this to say these are the two anointed, 
I don't think we can see it other than in some way God is working through two appointed leaders to fuel his people's lamp, their shining, their brightness. So we're depending on God's anointed, not the world's powerful. And this is the call in its immediate context to the people of Israel is therefore, go build the temple. (laughs) Therefore, resume this work you've been doing. It's the same overall goal that Haggai has in his message to the people. Step up and build the temple and make this happen for the glory of God. It's the same goal in this particular text of saying, come on, guys. Yeah, Zerubbabel started it, and yeah, it looked pitiful, but it doesn't matter because God's the one at work. By his spirit and by his work, not the small beginnings. By his work, not your first impressions. By the leadership of his anointed, not those who you might otherwise look to who look so powerful and great and majestic. We're going to proceed in that basis. And so he's calling them to building the temple. So as we look at this with, with New Testament eyes and recognize, okay, we're at a different point in salvation history. God has done even more. We can't help but recognize in this picture of the priest and the king the ultimate fulfillment of those ideas, that Jesus is the ultimate priest and king. He is the ultimate anointed one of God. It's the exact same theme, the exact same role that he took and perfected. Jesus, who was not covered with filth like Joshua the priest was. Jesus, who was not kind of in a weird spot of whether he was allowed to rule or not like Zerubbabel. Jesus, who was not named the seed of Babylon, but instead was named God with us. Jesus, the ultimate priest king, the ultimate anointed of God who came to lead and to save, to pay for our sins, to rescue his people, and to show us also how to depend on the Spirit and pursue God in faithfulness as his disciples. We can't help but see that because that's exactly where God aims us with this, to follow his anointed, to do his work by his Spirit. It's exactly the call of the New Testament to us. Follow Jesus to do God's work by his spirit. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, that God has prepared good works for us to do. Not that we're rescued and saved by those good works, by grace you are saved, but he has prepared good works for you to do that you can then do by his spirit. So what do we do with this? As we we hear that call to the people, build the temple, to us, follow Jesus in faithfulness, but flesh that out specifically Don't despise God's small starts. He's not finished with you. He's not finished with what he'll do in you. When you you look at your life and you feel like this is pitiful, this is pathetic, I'm broken down, I'm beaten down, I'm doing well in some spots and doing bad in others or whatever, and you see this is so small, this is accomplishing nothing or that sort of thing, don't despise those things. Recognize God is at work, even if it's only the start right now. When you're dealing with sin temptations that come and go, and it's, you know, as we've termed before, like a besetting sin, like it's something that you particularly deal with on a regular basis. Maybe other people do, maybe other people don't, but you're dealing with it. And it comes and goes, and you feel like you're accomplishing victory, and then the next day you fail in it. The next day you're angry again, you're greedy again, you're whatever. Don't despise the day of small things, the growth that God is building in you slowly as he teaches you dependence, as he teaches you to grow. When you're dealing with suffering that feels never-ending and you're growing, you're growing spiritually, you're growing, maybe you're getting healthier, 
but then it's still good week, bad week, good day, bad five days, whatever, trading back and forth, and there's little small stuff here, and nothing feels huge. Don't despise the day of small things. God is at work, and that is great, and he is working out a long-term plan. And in his long-term plan, as Romans 8 tells us, he has called and justified. He's sanctifying, and he will glorify. So in God's long-term plan, yes, there might be small things right now, but there is eternal life. There is glorification. There is no more sin. There's no more pain and no more tears. That's what he's leading us toward. So whatever you're feeling now in the small things, there are still great things to come, even the greatest things to come. And for now, God's giving you a chance to grow and learn and be made more like him and to recognize your own dependence along the way, to live in faithful dependence on him. The God of all things is still God in small things. The God of all things, the one who made everything, the one who sustains the universe by the power of his word, the one who holds your atoms together in ways that science still hasn't explained, the God who sustains everything, the creator of the universe, huge, grandiose, major terms we talk about, the one who can calm the sea with nothing but, hey, shut up, the one who can remake all things while barely making effort at it. He's created this. He's created all you see. Everything great we could ever say about God and his goodness and his amazingness, all these things, huge, huge God of all things. He is still God in the small things of your daily life. When things feel meaningless, when things feel pointless, when things feel like nothing's happening, when things feel like I tried and I failed and now I'm done, he's still God. He's still God right there. And he's the same God that can rule the universe who draws near to you and empowers you by his spirit. He doesn't reduce his power or reduce his ability just because you feel beaten down for a day. He is right there. His spirit is capable. When you look at yourself, when you get self-consumed in all of these things, you pretty much guaranteed to fail. Because you know what? You are not trustworthy to do all things. <laughs> you are not able to do all things. You're not all-knowing. You're not omniscient. You're not omnipresent. You're not everywhere you aren't all capable. That's okay. You don't have to be. But if you look at yourself as the answer to your problems, if you look at yourself as the solution, if you try to ask the question, what can I do in my own power and my own might, you're going to be depressed. Guaranteed. Either that or you're not being honest with yourself. So either you're telling yourself a lie about how great you are or you're being honest and you'll be depressed. Instead, look to God. <laughs> Instead, look to... It, confirm to yourself your own dependence on someone else, on God. Affirm the reality that you are not enough to handle everything you deal with in life. That's okay. You were never meant to be. You're actually meant to be a dependent, faithful servant. You were meant to be vitally tied to the vine, abiding in the vine, clinging to the vine, because only there do you have life and hope. We see God say this to, to Zerubbabel and to the people, by my spirit, by my work, don't despise small things. It's the same thing in our daily life. 
So are we going to cling to him or are we going to cling to ourselves? I'm pretty sure it was uh, Charles Spurgeon who, who said this, but either way, it wasn't me. But he said, for every look that you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. For every look you take at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. You look at your own weariness, your own sinfulness, you look at your own glory and power. It's not worthy of focusing on. So often the the difficulties that we deal with are not necessarily because we are weary or because we are, you know, not powerful enough or because our health is bad or whatever else. A lot of the difficulties we deal with is because we're we're too self-centered. We're too stuck looking 10 times at ourselves and only once to Jesus. We're too stuck looking at inadequacy and wondering why we find inadequacy there. Instead, look to Jesus. Look to the author and perfecter of your faith. As Philippians 1.6 says, he who began a good work in you, and he who began the work is not you. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God started the work in you. He's going to continue doing it and continue doing it and continue doing it and continue doing it because of his day-by-day faithfulness until the day Jesus comes back and says, all right, we're done. The world is made new. The enemies of God are gone. Eternal life, let it begin. (laughs) That day of Christ Jesus, God is going to work in you all the way until that or possibly until your death, which comes prior in many cases in which case you go to be with him. So it's just as good. (laughs) He is doing that work. You don't have to look at yourself and wonder, how am I going to keep doing this? How am I going to keep going? All you have to do is look at him and, well, he's got plenty to keep going with. His power and his grace to sustain you day by day. So often we look at ourselves and look at our own trials. We, our, our math very often fails to take into account his work. And so we know that we need 50 units of strength for the day, and we know that if we look at our right hand and our left hand and the rest of our body, we've only got 35 units of strength, so we can't do it. We forget to take in count to our math that we have infinity added in there. God's grace for the day, his power for the day, his strength for the day. That when we look at our own feeble efforts and we know we are ignorant, we know that we may or may not do it right, We might try and fail. We might try and give someone bad advice. We might try and punish our children wrong or incorrectly or out of anger instead of out of love for them or any number of things. I might screw up this afternoon. We look at that and that creates fear in us. Instead, God's freeing us to say, yeah, I know that you're a screw up. So can you be faithful anyway? Do your best anyway in dependence on me and depend on me to make up what you lack rather than trying to make yourself make up what you lack. And because he can do that, we look forward to what he will do in us and through us for life.